Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 72. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. It has been a while since it we've ha- a done while. a podcast. It has not been a while since we did this intro, because due to technical problems, we're doing it twice. But it's been a while exactly. since, we did, <laughs> since we had an episode of this podcast that went to the ears of our beloved listeners. Thank you to everyone who reached out and said, hey, when's the next episode going to be? Or sort of implicitly threatened us if we didn't get an episode of us soon. Um, we're really touched that so many people care so much what we think and have to say about this. And we are back. It was uh, a confluence of vacations. And then at one point I had like a throat cold. So it would have sounded like Kermit the Frog was trying to whisper a podcast. So there were a lot of things, but we are back and we have news. Yes. Uh-huh. So uh, Mitch Marner has, as you probably all know, Resigned with the Toronto Maple Leafs, he signed a six-year contract worth $10.893 million per year. Basically, all of it will be paid in signing bonuses. And, yeah, I mean, I guess we, we can just get into this right away. A couple, I guess, other notes. This buys two years of Marner's uh, unrestricted free agency years, and he has a no-movement clause for both of those years, a full no-movement clause. Uh Which is kind of an obvious thing. I mean, it's very unlikely the Leafs want to move him anyways. So, yeah, let's just jump right into it. Um, what are your thoughts on this contract, Fuleman? Okay, well, it's too much money is probably the bottom line there. I want to be clear here because I think that there is a tendency when you criticize the contract for people to think that you're saying the player is bad. The player is not bad. The player is brilliant. Mitch Marner is a great, great player. He's not a franchise player. And we're kind of paying him like one. He's not Austin Matthews, and we're paying him pretty close to what we already paid Austin Matthews, which was a lot in the first place. So I think that this is probably too much money. Uh, The easiest way to kind of describe this in shorthand is that Mitch Marner now has the second highest cap hit for a winger in the NHL. He's only behind Artembi Panarin, who signed as UFA, an unrestricted free agent, um just this past summer with the Rangers. So he's making more per year against the cap than Nikita Kucherov of the Lightning, than Mark Stone of the Vegas Golden Knights, than any winger you want to name except Panarin. And he's not better than all of those guys. His point production is terrific, but we got basically no discount whatsoever for the fact that he is a restricted free agent. And the point of restricted free agency is that it gives teams a leg up on keeping their players and keeping them at a lower salary. As a side note, I follow a lot of sort of liberal left Marxist people on Twitter, and they have been ranting a little bit about how the salary cap makes people side with ownership against labor, and then that's bad for the revolution or something. We're talking about millionaires here, please. So (laughs) focusing on the important thing here is we're probably paying... Mitch Marner, I would say an excess of about $2 million a year against the cap. Yeah, let, let's say one and a half to two. One and a half to two. You know, if he'd come in at 9.3 on a six year, I would consider that a good deal. This is a lot. It's not the end of the world, but it also isn't nothing. And the Leafs are capped out to an extent that is extreme now. Uh, We thought we were capped out before. We have almost no room to maneuver now. uh, And we'll get into that a little bit here. But I think the bottom line is we overpaid because we liked the player and we were desperate. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to hard to get away from that. And, and again, you know, Marner is an unbelievable player, um, and he is twenty two. He's going to be getting better throughout the life of this contract. If if you gave me the choice of signing Mitch Marner to his deal or signing Artemi Panarin to his deal, I take Marner every time. Mm-hmm. The reason we're disappointed, and the reason I think Leaf fans as a whole are disappointed, is because when you sign an unrestricted free agent, for example, when we sign John Tavares, you add a huge amount of value to your team for nothing but cap space, right? That player wasn't previously on your team. The expectation, the base case, is that you did not have that player. With Mitch Marner and with any restricted free agent, that's not the the case, right? You had that player before and you were retaining them. So you're, you're staying the same in a sense, you know, modulo the improvement of the player, and you're paying UFA prices for doing so. So it, it's really, the issue is expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Marner will provide more excess value over his deal than John Tavares will over his. And that's because John Tavares is aging out of his amazing prime, and Mitch Marner will be entering his probably slightly less amazing prime. But the timing of it means that Mitch Marner will probably be better over the course of this deal than John Tavares will. But when you take into account kind of the expectations and kind of what the Leafs could have reasonably been expected to do in each case, the John Tavares signing is a far better better signing because of the context, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's the key takeaway here is people are coming at this often from an angle of, well, Mitch Marner is a really good player. Yes, he is. But the issue with any contract is, what were you supposed to do instead? With John Tavares, it wasn't, what were you supposed to do instead? Could you have gotten him for less? It was, well, if we offer him significantly less, he won't come. With Mitchell Marner, we have his rights. He had, by most accounts, turned down two offers, apparently over the summer. This was the rumor, anyway, for offer sheets. He wanted to play in Toronto. Now, I'm not saying that we can exploit that to the hilt and we were going to get him for $6 million a year or something like that. What I'm saying is we had negotiating rights over him. We had rights of first refusal. And we had a long string of comparables that suggested that he should come in in maybe the 8-9 range. Maybe a little bit more than that. Now, points get players paid is a fact. And Mitchell Marner had a lot of points. He had 94 points last year. We've talked about... All of the things that went into that, he played with John Tavares. John Tavares has goosed the scoring of many worse players than Mitch Marner. Uh, He had a high on-ice shooting percentage. He's also a fantastic player. Right. Underline, bold, emphasis. He's really good. And in the end, I feel like this is exactly the kind of mistake that your modern progressive front office would be prone to. Like, if you build a team the way that we've kind of wish-casted building a team for the longest time... The Stars and Scrubs model, um, erring on the side of overpaying guys who are entering their prime rather than leaving it. Um, It's the class of error that we're kind of okay with making. It still looks like an overpay, and I think Kyle Dubas would acknowledge, uh, if you you fed him truth serum, that this is too much. Uh, James Myrtle had an article right after this came out where he alluded to the front office feeling defeated. Like, he basically said the mood in the front office was we lost this one, and I think they're right to feel that way to some extent. In the end, I think that it seems like it was clear that we really wanted the player. It was clear that we're really trying to contend right this instant, because this is the year we have 
Riley and Muzzin and Tyson Berry all locked up, whereas Muzzin and Berry are going to go unrestricted this summer. So this is a good shot at a cup. And I think we kind of clearly wanted to make the most of it. And I think that desperation was exploited successfully by Marner to get some more money on top of his contract. That's yeah. how it looks to me. And Marner did use his leverage, which was that the Leafs need him to be a contender, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, to, to whatever degree the Leafs could have played hardball and probably should have, or you could argue they should have, um, certainly to a greater degree than they did. The, the fear for the Leafs is what if we don't end up with the player? Right, yes. like, like what? What if it gets too stubborn? Like he becomes too stubborn. We don't uh, move off our position, and we lose out on a first line caliber winger for you know a million in salary. Is that worth it? Probably not. That's the disaster scenario for everyone involved. That's not a good scenario for Marner either, of course. But it's a game of chicken at that point, and the Leafs blinked first. Yes, they did, and I speculated a bit in my reaction piece on this, where I said. It really seems to me like Kyle Dubas, who is first and foremost a reasonable, thoughtful guy who likes his players, who likes what Mitch Marner brings to the dressing room as well. Um, I think that he thought, I want to make a reasonable offer, and I'm okay with it being a bit of an overpay just so I can get this done. The rumor was that he offered seven years at $11 million per in June, which is already a considerable overpay. Um and when I say rumor, I'm not just saying, you know, someone on HF board said it. I'm saying Darren Dreger reported that. The fact that we, well, maybe not opened, but that we were that high that early in the process, well, that sets you up to get taken for a ride upwards by someone who's willing to push. And so there were a lot of leaks about how Marner felt disrespected and stuff like that. All of these things that add up to basically, gee, I'm so mad I might even sign an offer sheet somewhere else. And while I didn't believe it, I'm not sure the Leafs really believed it. It does feel a little bit like we got played here. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know. Darren Ferris <laughs> is not going to be able to get any free drinks in Toronto uh, for the next little while, but he might not need to because he's getting paid pretty handsomely as a result of this contract. Yeah, and by the way and this is just the lawyer in me coming out, but a lot of people like demonized him or they said Mitch Marner was getting bad advice or something like that. One, Mitch Marner is the principal there. And ultimately Darren Ferris is his agent. That means that he takes client instructions. If Mitch Marner wants to stop the process at any time and says, go make a deal, that happens. End of story. That may be what happened. End of story. When this process was all said and done. But two, If you want to play hardball and you're a young player looking to get the most you can out of a team, uh, I think you probably look at hiring Darren Ferris. You know, like, he was quite successful in this negotiation. He did very well for himself and his client. And so as much as that pisses people off because our interests are not his interests, I think he's sleeping very soundly at night, probably on a bed of money. So in the end here, the bottom line is we have less cap space. It's not the end of the world. I think (laughs) the first thing you and I worked together on was the Matt Martin contract article where we criticized that and we said basically uh, you can get a player who does all this for the league minimum. Why are you giving this guy two and a half million a year? And so maybe not (laughs) as a sort of a funny coincidence. um, The excess value there is probably a million five to 
you know, almost $2 million. That's kind of the same as Marner there. And so it's not the end of the world. I'm still happier having the player, as we were saying. But, you know, we feel the pinch there. We feel the absence of a player of money that we could spend. And, uh, you know, that's not nothing. It's too bad. Yeah, very much so. So it's, I don't know, obviously it's unfortunate, but I mean, what... what, You move on. (laughs) Yeah, at the end of the day, um, and it is worth emphasizing this, you can only overpay a star RFA if you drafted and developed a star in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it's a good situation to be in. In an, The issue, as, as we said, is the missed opportunity. And there's been comments, you know, the entire year, basically since the Matthews deal, and I, even, I guess even since the Nylander thing, where, you know, people have been saying, this is where RFAs are kind of taking a stand and they're, getting teams to reward them more handsomely and pay them what they're worth. Mm-hmm. And viewed through the lens of that, if you view Mitch Marner as the first or one of the first dominoes to fall in that way, I think you can convince yourself that this is less of an issue than it is, that other teams, that the Leafs did not really miss out on an opportunity so much as the seas are changing under them. And they're the first team affected, but other teams with star RFAs will also be affected in a similar way. And relatively speaking, uh, the Leafs won't be kind of behind in that sense, at least not relative to teams who have star RFAs unsigned. Teams that signed them a few years into the past would still get a huge advantage. Right. I'm not entirely sure this is going to be borne out, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like, So the contracts that we've seen so far Marner has kind of by far the one that's most out of whack with his comparables uh Sebastian Ajo after signing an offer sheet so presumably this is a higher offer than he thought um Carolina was offering him after signing an offer sheet he signed a very reasonable five by 8.5 yes uh a very good deal at the end of it um and you know we haven't seen Braden Point Mikko Rantanen um Matthew Kachuk we haven't seen any of them come in yet and they're kind of the prestige forwards and so you'd think they might have a bit more bearing but uh, I actually had a discussion on Twitter with Totally Offside who is a funny Twitter follow and also (laughs) a very strong-willed person in terms of he thinks the Leafs like really disastrously overpaid here but I said well maybe the the market is changing for RFAs. And I, and then he was like, well, what about Keller and Ajo and all them? And I had reasons for, I was like, well, Ajo was an offer sheet and Keller was Arizona trying to lock up its players for term. And he's like, you can't just say that none of these players count as comparables. At some point, the market is what it is. And our guy's going to stand out. So if those star players like Braden Point, uh, Kachuk and Rantanen come in for notably less when you adjust for term, That'll be more telling. It'll be interesting to see if a lot of them opt for bridge deals or something. And it is worth noting, Tampa is capped out to the hilt. About as badly as we are, depending on where point comes in. And Calgary doesn't have a lot of space either. So it's possible you'll see a squeeze there. You might see a move to more bridge deals. But as of right now, I don't think that you can say the market has shifted per se. Um, you know, maybe Marner is the first step in shifting it, and he's moved those negotiations. We don't know. 
or at least it hasn't shifted to the degree that, you know, that that fully explains Marner's deal, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's shifted in that, yeah, these these guys are kind of waiting till longer. You know, we, we have a good half dozen star players not in training camps because of contract disputes, right? Mm-hmm. So that is, is certainly unusual. And maybe they the contracts will get more team-friendly, right? Brock Besser reportedly uh, turned down a, a $7 million AAV. I forget what the term was, but it was like a deal that was not terribly unfair to him. It was it was like a decent enough deal. Right. And maybe you, you wouldn't have seen that two years ago or three years ago. But yeah, it, it's... T- teams aren't just perhaps squeezing these players as much, um, using every ounce of leverage, because a huge part of this is also managing the relationship, right? And this is also... Mm-hmm. Maybe an argument or, or something that Dubas kind of had in the back of his mind where it's like, okay, sure, maybe I could squeeze Marner, take this down to October 1st, tell him, if you don't sign for six by nine, you're not playing this year, mm-hmm. right? Really lean on him through the media by all accounts. The last two days, which is when uh, popular sentiment really started turning against Marner after the report that he turned down an 11 by 7 million offer. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, seven, seven years by 11 million rather. Um, apparently that time was hard on him. If the Leafs kind of used the fact that, hey, we're owned by two media companies. We could push the narrative if we want. If they use that, they probably could have gotten Marner for cheaper. Then again, Marner and his camp have reportedly shown a pretty, um, I guess, dogged, uh, dogged, I guess, memory or long-term, a really, really long memory. And, you know, they're... They don't really forgive or forget. No. So uh, yeah, it sounds a lot like Paul Marner is very status conscious. Let's put yes. it that way. Yeah. So yeah, I, I stumbled over my words because I'm trying to be very careful in what I say. <laughs> Please don't come but, for us, Paul. <laughs> yeah. No, but basically, um, you don't want to screw a guy on a on a contract. Screw in relative terms here. And then have that sour the relationship, and then you know it goes belly up in the future. Now there's a trade-off, of course. You do, you also don't want to give the guy a blank check, and I think the Leafs came closer to a blank check than ruining the relationship. Yeah, I mean Kyle was so emphatic for so long about we can and we will, we're gonna keep these guys. He's gonna be a Leaf for a long time. We really respect the player. And aside from an interesting point in June where he said. Well, if an offer sheet came, we'd have to think about what we were going to do. And then from these leaks about what Marner had turned down, which sounded like they came from the team, um, they really played very nice with him. And the interesting thing is that um, the two times that they did seem to play a little less nice seemed to get results. You know, when Calduba said, like, look, if an offer sheet comes, we might not match we don't know and then no offer sheet got signed despite everything that we'd heard and then you know as you've said uh we heard that he turned down 11 million for seven years and then two days later there's a deal signed so it's a bit like you wonder if there was some more room to be a little bit less mr nice guy and that's the feeling that i kind of can't escape on this you know, uh, having gone through it and having done it, the relationship is probably better than it would be if he'd followed kind of my imagining of what else he could have done. 
Apparently there are still some bruised feelings. I can't really imagine what about, unless behind closed doors Kyle was a lot meaner for some reason. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, there's a point at which you're just being silly. But well, um, I think the point at which they were being silly was like the fascination with Matthews's deal. And I, I understand that, mm-hmm. right? Like y- you can, if you, okay, if you are willing to accept a stupid argument, you can convince yourself that Mitch Marner is as good or better than Austin Matthews. <laughs> All you have to do is be stupid. Yeah, no, I mean, and the stupid <laughs> argument is, well, Marner has points. more points the last two years. 94 points. Yeah. Right, and it's yeah. like okay, sure, yeah, cool. He has more points. Like, I, I've mentioned this before, but the mainstream hockey media is like the first to be like, oh, you know, we, we look beyond points. You know, points aren't the only thing that matters. And then <laughs> literally all their analysis of forwards is just based on points. No, and but this is the thing is they try to dress it up as we're seeing the reasons for the points. You know what I mean? Like it's just sort of like when a guy has low points, it's like oh, we're not even looking at the points. We're looking at his forecheck, and he's not aggressive enough. Or we're seeing, you know, that higher-end playmaking that gets to the points or something like that. But it's always just, you know, backwards rationalization from the point total that shows up on on the screen. You know, it is it is a little disingenuous. And again, Marner's a great player. Like, this is the thing, is all of this is, you know, the solve and the reason for this is that Marner is as good as he is. But yeah, he's, he's a phenomenal as player. As, as Matthews. And, you know, we're paying him... Less, you know, he didn't end up getting the Matthews contract, but the Matthews contract was huge. Like, like on a, on a proportionate basis, based on term, the Matthews contract is arguably the biggest RFA deal that's been signed under the CBA. It's a less, it's a lower dollar amount than Connor McDavid, but it was five years instead of eight. So, you know, anyway, I, I mean, I guess... What you can say is that, like, okay, at least it's done. At least it's here. We didn't lose a star. The bottom line is he could and he did. It was painful and it was expensive. Dubas said all... as much in in his yeah. in his presser. He was like, eh, I mean, I almost got the sense where he, he was just like, oh, God, I, this past like, few months has just been fucking miserable. I think that... And this is reading between the lines a bit, so I'm prefacing this by saying that I am speculating here just based on this and that leak that I read. But I think the negotiation went a lot like he was saying, okay, we'll give you seven by 11, uh, lots of signing bonuses, no movement clause in the final years when you're eligible for them. And Ferris and Marta said, eh, Matthew's contract. Kyle said, okay, well, what about a three-year bridge? I mean, we could do something like this. And they said, ah, well, you know, Matthew's contract. And then it went back and forth like that, and the sum total of the Marner team's negotiating stance was, eh, Matthew's contract. And so, even if you thought that that was reasonable as an actual stance to take, which is not, um, it's effective as a bargaining position, but, like, that would drive you insane. Like, <laughs> you would you would start to think, like, I'm giving a lot here, and they were, and I'm getting very little back. And I'm wondering if that kind of frustration was what led to those leaks that I suspect were from the team about the deals that were getting turned down. You know, I think that that show of frustration maybe could have come a little bit earlier. Now, that said, the natural deadline was also, you know, they want to get him in camp. They, and, you know, they have to get him basically by the start of October. Um, they had two 
uh, or else they were going to run into a lot of cap difficulties that precluded the six-year deal. So, you know, there were a, a lot of factors there, but it's hard not to feel like uh, we just ran into a more obdurate party in terms of negotiating that really just did not move until they absolutely had to. And they got what they wanted. So good for them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there's, not, there's, just, there's not a ton to say. I, and look, we, we sound more disappointed than we, we should be, I suppose. Um, and at yeah. the end of the day, the Leafs are in a good position. You mentioned before that we're capped out. We are capped out, but we're capped out because we have a good team. A very, very good team, in my opinion, right? Um, and, you know, like, not to throw stones, but there's a lot of other fan bases who are making fun of the Leafs, which is fair. I would, too, if I was in their yeah. shoes. Yeah. But they're capped out, because and they suck. Yeah. Vancouver, don't re- you don't really have stones to throw. <laughs> Yeah, Edmonton. I mean, here's the bottom line. It's like, would you like to trade teams? Yeah. I bet you would. Yeah. You know, uh, like, eh. So. <laughs> Edmonton fans, I've seen, and this is my fault because I also go looking for this stuff because I I hate myself, really. <laughs> um, but I've seen Edmonton fans be like, oh, yeah, the dry, people laugh at the Dreisaitl deal. It's so good now. Yeah, I mean, Dreisaitl deal looks much better in the context of how he's evolved as a player and, mm-hmm. you know, how, how overpaid Rudy Marner is. Your team still sucks shit. Yeah, you, this you is have the th- thing. Is like you have three forwards, bitch. Like, yeah. <laughs> who's the fourth best forward on Edmonton? My like, I tweeted. I said, I think it's a guy named Daryl that picked up at the Y. Like, they don't have anybody. Our fourth best forward is William Nylander. Get fucked. Yeah, you know? like, <laughs> sorry. Um. So yes, like the the Marner contract is not. It's not a win for the Leafs, but the win for the Leafs is just the situation that they're in. They're in a very yeah. good situation, right? Yeah, they they well, should like, be a good team from for the duration of these contracts they have the most important pieces in place now i'm I'm being a bit fast and loose there because there are very very important pieces that still need to be kind of re-signed after the next couple years right notably Mm -hmm. freddie anderson i mean you're you're never gonna have like everyone you ever want locked in for eight years right like it's always going to be an evolving thing exactly but broad strokes if the Leafs are smart, then they should be a good team for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the, like the forward core is pretty much set. Like they have what presumably will be their seven best forwards set for the next three years at least or more. And that's uh, Matthews, Tavares, Marner, Nylander, Kerfoot, Janssen, and Kapanen. You know... You can quite easily keep supplementing that forward group with rookies on the come up or bargain bin guys. And I think you can do that and have a top five forward group in the NHL every year. Like, I'm a big believer in this group. And aside from Tavares, who is a superstar and is 28, uh, they're all 25 or younger. So, like, we're not paying any years into anyone's 30s, except for Tavares. You know, if you big picture it a little bit, they are in a good position. And that excess 1.52 million be damned, I do feel good about this forward group. So, you know, yeah. that's the concept. And, I'm, like, look, that, that overpay does matter, right? Um, mm-hmm. We'll talk about this when we talk about training camp battles, but uh, cost is actually really going to factor into who wins those roles. 
right? Uh, especially <laughs> mid-season, if, if there's injuries or, you know, performance-based reasons to call someone up or send someone down. So like, it does matter, but you do have to take a step back and say, you know what, all things considered, this is not an awful position to be in. It's, a, it's actually quite a good position to be in. And at the same time, that doesn't invalidate, you know, the reasoned criticisms that people can have about this deal. Right, I yes, I do see a lot of yeah. Leafs fans going like, "Lol, people making fun of the Leafs." Would you rather be back in two thousand six while we suck? It's like, no, I wouldn't rather be back in two thousand six. <laughs> but I can also say, "Hey, we're in a good position, but this could have been done better." Yeah, that's what we're saying. It's like we're saying it's like ah, uh, you know, uh, this room isn't really arranged very well. And people are like, "Oh yeah, would you rather have your house burned down?" No, I'd rather the room were arranged differently. That's it. And so I, I have to admit, I do get frustrated by people being like, oh, wow, would you rather not have someone who had 94 points? Chill, please. But anyway, I mean, that is the optimistic side. So as much as we've been, uh, someone said, like, typical doom and gloom when we wrote articles about this, we have been a little typical doom and gloom for the first 25 odd minutes of this podcast. But it is a good situation. There's a lot of opening on defense. Um, a lot of moving parts there. And so there's room for things to evolve there. But uh, yeah, so the the team is in a good position. So now we yeah. have to figure out, okay, what are we going to do this season? Yes, and the, um, the defense is, is interesting. So, I mean, this season, and I guess let, let's transition to talking about training camp battles. And we'll start with the defense because there's probably mm-hmm. more to discuss there. This season, the top five if everyone is healthy, is kind of locked in. You're going to have Morgan Riley and Cody Cece on a pair. Um, strangely, Cece might somehow be one of Riley's better partners. <laughs> he, he's really not had a murderer's row. He's, it's been, what, Hunwick for a while, um, Hainsey for a bit, Zaitsev. It's a lot of guys who are not great. I don't think Cece's great either. So, But no. Cece might be like average in that list. That's the hope, right? And, yes. you know, he actually shoots right, which, you know, Hainsey didn't. So forever, that's worth. Yeah. God, that, that's the saddest, grasping at that's the saddest <laughs> way to, um, to talk yourself into play. Well, he was literally born with a strong hand that is convenient for our purposes. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't beat that. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, so we have Ryan DeCeci, okay. um, Jake Muzzin, and Tyson Berry, and then... Travis Dermott, who is currently injured and will start the season on LTIR. Um, Mike Babcock said that Dermott will miss about 14 games, which is a bit of a specific number, but that basically puts him on track to return <laughs> start in November. <laughs> I just find it funny when it's like, because the Leafs are clearly always doing things with a salary cap, and we have Brennan Pridham kind of for that purpose, and he's always doing these ingenious little maneuvers. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I feel like it's a, it's a 14-game injury, you know, <laughs> just to pick a number out of the air. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that that'll, that'll bring him back in time for November. So after that point, um, Dermot will be on the on the left side most likely. I don't foresee Babcock putting him in a higher role that he hasn't used him in yet on his offside coming off an injury. So that it'll any kind of promotion will probably come throughout the season not, rather than immediately. And this will be a certainly mm-hmm. a point of consternation for Leafs Twitter. But anyways, that leaves kind of one permanent playing spot on the right side open, a part-time slot on the left side open, and then a potential 7th D slot, which may or may not be open depending on um, the Leafs' cap situation and who else they keep up, 
Mm-hmm. So uh, Katya had a really good article on this that went up yesterday, I believe, and just basically points out. It, I won't. I'd be doing it a disservice to kind of summarize it here because it, it does go through quite a few scenarios and quite a bit of detail. But essentially, what it comes down to is the Leafs have to be careful about the size of the depth options, the size of the cap hit of the depth options that that they play, right? Um, and they will have to run twenty one player rosters or potentially even 20 uh, player rosters at various points throughout the season depending on who gets called up and when and um, yeah do you, do you remember the specifics of it because they're escaping me right now but I remember there was one situation where when we get Hyman back we almost have to go with a 20-man roster yeah I mean that's basically the thinking so it's worth emphasizing um, when we say we're capped out now we mean it. And when we're talking about the size of cap hits, we're literally talking about the difference between guys who make $750,000 a year and guys who make nine twenty-five. Like, that is how squeezed we are. That makes a difference as to how many players we can carry. So, if Zach Hyman comes back, um, we probably need to go and find some money. We may have to drop down to a 20 or 21-man roster. Uh, we probably can't have 22. So it starts meaning, you know, when we say a 20-man roster, by the way, that means you have 12 forwards, 6 defense, 2 goaltenders, which is what you play in a game. So you have no injury spares. You have no one in the press box whatsoever. I'm, I'm just looking through it now. Um, yeah, so w- when Hyman comes back, we can, as you said, use a 21-man roster, so we could have one spare. Mm-hmm. But there's almost no way to get 22 work to work, or at least Katya couldn't find one. And mm-hmm. I trust her her thoroughness with this. Yeah, exactly. Now, when the Leafs are at home, one of the advantages of having your AHL team uh, in the same city is that call-ups are quite easy. Uh, the Leafs in the past have actually made great use of this, doing little paper transactions constantly, where the player didn't actually physically go anywhere but where he was nominally assigned to the minor league affiliate. Uh, Trevor Moore apparently got papered up and down countless times last season. But the thing is, is that if you're on a road trip and you have an injury, you can be kind of caught out with a 20-man roster. You can end up playing a game where if a guy is hurt, you have no one to put in. And you're just playing down a forward or down a defenseman. Um that can be a little bit tough. It's not the end of the world, but it's certainly something that you notice. Um, in the end, I think the Leafs have accepted that it's you know kind of a risk that they're going to take, but it does mean that we could be a little bit exposed here and there. Yes, and that kind of sucks. Perversely, <laughs> um, um, if an injury happens mid-season, we would prefer it to be an injury where we could put someone on on LTIR and gain relief. And be able to call someone up making the same amount of money. Yeah, and it will be interesting to see in the event that someone does get injured, whether the recovery time on that injury is a little bit longer than you might expect for that reason. But who knows? The result here is that there are going to be some gymnastics. I don't see it as super likely that the Leafs are running a full 23-man roster. I think it's like impossible. I, it's basically, you can't be done. Like, that's the biggest takeaway from Katja's piece, which, again, you should all read. Un- unless but they make a trade. Ha- I mean, th- sorry, this all goes out the window yeah. if they make a trade. 
So, so I mean, yes, if you're still does. one of the many Leafs fans holding on to hope that we trade Cody Cece. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I question your sanity, but I admire your persistence. <laughs> but if they do, Maybe this then you're time not. they'll do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, if you're convinced that Cody Cece is uh, really, really bad, which you know, I, I, can't I am find. Yeah, uh, I can't think of any reason why you would believe that other than you know evidence. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so we're in sort of a weird spot where we have those seven forwards I named earlier. Um, None of whom I expect to be traded at all. Yeah. Um, the lower three of them, Kerfoot, Janssen, Kappen, and we're all signed this offseason. And then there are the big four. And they also think are being traded. all provide probably value above where they were signed. Um, for all the consternation, most of, a lot of it valid about how Dubas has handled the high-end RFA negotiations. The mid-to-low-end RFA negotiations have been handled pretty cleanly. Not that that's a very yeah. difficult thing to do. Most teams are able to do that, but it's worth noting. Yeah, like, I don't think there are any spectacular bets unless someone takes a big leap forward, which is not impossible, but there are also no bad ones. I'm happy with all of them. Uh, but then you have your defense where you're obviously not touching Morgan Riley. Uh, you're not touching Muzzin and Barry, both of whom make much less than they're worth to us. And so it's either you trade Cody CC. Or you have no one available to trade who makes more than 9.25. Like that's it. There's a, a huge gap there. Um, so yeah, there are. It is going to be a, a bit of a squeeze. This is most interesting, I think, with regard to Timothy Liljegren, which is something we were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's probably worth diving in a little bit there. And this is going to involve a little bit of cap, which I maybe understand. Maybe not, So, but I'm doing my best here from what I can get and what I've discussed with Katja. So Timothy Liljegren is a right-shooting defenseman. He's old enough that his contract no longer slides. He's been heard about for a couple of years. A lot of uh, Leafs fans think, hey, maybe this is his year to be on the third pairing. Maybe. The only thing is, is that, one, uh, Timothy Liljegren makes 863 as his base cap hit, which as we've said, is actually in the range where that starts to matter because that's around $100,000. That's more than some of his competition. And that actually kind of counts for us, which is insane. The other thing is that Timothy Liljegren has performance bonuses in his contract, which I think we, we all thought we would never have to think about this again, but we're back. He only has $400,000 worth of them. But as far as we can tell... If he's on the roster at the start of the season, those don't really matter for our purposes. And if he gets them and there's an overage, it just rolls over into next year when we're going to have more cap space anyway. And the amount of the overage would be probably quite small. At most 400k. If, yeah, exactly. It's not something that would really be concerning. But if he gets called up during the season, as far as we can tell, with the way that bonuses interact with long-term injured reserve, so LTIR, we would have to account for him including the bonuses, whether or not he's earning them. So that would be 1.2. And in that circumstance, that makes it a lot trickier to fit, fit him in versus guys like, you know, I don't know, Jordan Smaltz or Ben Harper, God help me. Who are making who about significantly... half that. Yeah. Exactly. And so as far as we can tell, that seems to make it likely that 
once Liljegren is sent down, if he is sent down at the start of camp, he's probably not coming back up again until playoffs, if then. Um, that's something to keep an eye on. And my understanding of these things is somewhat flexible. And you, people say, oh, well, Fulliman, you're a lawyer. You're supposed to understand these things. I never said I was a good lawyer. But first of all, <laughs> um, the league has, as far as I can tell, changed the rules on this without acknowledging it more than once. Like the off-season LTIR thing, I will go to my grave insisting that was not in there, and they put it in there to accommodate the Blackhawks. Anyway, so take this with a grain of salt, but it seems to me like there are issues around the cap that will make it difficult to call up Timothy Liljegren mid-season, depending on who he's replacing. And again, I'm indebted to Katja because we've discussed all this and she's noticed several of these things. So just something to keep an eye on there. The upside is pretty much all of the other defense candidates are just bargain bin boys. And they don't have performance bonuses because they can't. You're not allowed to have them except on particular contracts and then these guys have them. So if you see uh, a third pairing that's sort of like Martin Marincin or Jordan Smalls, which seems pretty reasonable to me, uh, that won't run into these kind of issues that we've been talking about. It's also worth noting, uh, Rasmus Sandin does not have performance bonuses. So the issue that we mentioned with Liljegren does not apply to Sandin. Yeah, kind of remarkably, eh? Um, I guess now he does position, make a, right? Yeah. Now, he does make a little bit more money yes. in terms of his base salary. Um, but given that he might slide, um, we should explain what we mean by slide here. If you're in the minors and you're on an ELC and you're under 20 and you haven't played 10 NHL games, your contract can just slide a year. It basically means there's an automatic extension of another season. And so your ELC doesn't start winding down until the next year. Basically, that means that instead of the ELC expiring in summer 2022, it would expire in summer 2023. Because ELCs are much, much cheaper than most real NHL contracts, this is potentially really beneficial. Because Liljegren is 20 now, uh, he doesn't meet the requirements, his contract won't slide any more than it already has. Because Sandin is 19, his contract can slide again. So there's a huge incentive, aside from the fact that he'd be trying to make the Leafs as a left defenseman, which is not easy. Um, for the Leafs to keep him down. Maybe he go he goes in and seizes the bull by the horns, and he's so good that the Leafs say, okay, fuck it, we can't deny him. But I would certainly say it's a more likely bet that he gets sent down this year. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. When you start looking at the options, and we'll just consider kind of the... Broadly speaking, we're just looking for a third-pair left defenseman and a third-pair right defenseman. And the third-pair left defenseman, we might lose them if they go on waivers, depending on the roster we have to hold up, but whatever. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's such a, there's so many guys. So you have Ben Harper, who, yeah. is, who is ass. Uh, Jordan Schmaltz, <laughs> who I might also be ass, but he has like a very limited, he is less of a track record of being ass than Ben Harper does. So I'm... More a kid, and he's more a right-handed right And he's a right-handed uh, defenseman, so, uh, yeah, biology helps him there. Uh, Martin Rinson, mm -hmm. who, you know, jokes aside, is, I think, a competent third-pairing guy, although one who is prone to really obvious and annoying errors. Justin Hall, who is, again, a right-pairing guy, uh, making 675 
which is actually below the league minimum. This is a, a bit of a clever contract by Dubis. Um, designed to, he gets paid the minimum this year, but he, the minimum last year was lower. So he got paid at like probably 650 last year as opposed to 700K, which is the minimum this year. So his AAV over a two-year deal was 675, which is you know, kind of mm. one of those small things that matters on the margins. It's only 25,000, but that 25,000 actually kind of makes a difference. Yes. The the thing is, is that the coach is still Mike Babcock. And so... Yeah, there's there, there's no chance Justin Hall... His attitude towards Justin Hall has been... Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I, I think this contract um, was designed for Justin Hall to be the um, cheap, the cheapest possible seventh defenseman. Because they would... They're more likely to... If we do run a 20 man, 21 man roster, which I think is likely. Um, and, you know, this is kind of going forward at, until... Or after... Hyman gets back. Before then, we have more freedom because Hyman's on, on LTIR. Mm-hmm. And we can replace his, you know, pr- relatively speaking, his gigantic $2.25 million cap hit, essentially. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But yeah, when Hyman comes back, I imagine Hall is going to be the seventh defenseman. So I think so. There is a potentially really funny scenario where we're running a 21-man, and he's our spare, and we're on a road trip, and a forward gets injured, and we have Justin Hall, fourth-line right wing. Which yeah. Which I think would be terrific. Yeah, that, that If it happens for one night. That would actually be kind of funny. <laughs> um, so we, you have those four guys. Then you also have uh, Sandin and Liljegren, who will be competing for jobs, although they both kind of have an uphill battle. Sandin more so than Liljegren. Um Mm-hmm. Just because the left side is, you're you're competing for um, only one part-time job, effectively, and the Leafs might rather just think, okay, well, given that, let's just have him play the entire year in the AHL and get top pair minutes there. Then you also have yeah. um, Kevin Gravel, who is someone who we signed, and <laughs> <laughs> he is a man. He is named after rocks. Yes, he's very large. That is the extent of our knowledge about him. He shoots left. Yes. Before anyone gets too excited. Seriously, like he, he's, <laughs> I, 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 if Kevin Gravel was like on fire, I could not point him out to you. Right, like I, <laughs> I have no clue what he looks like. He is six four, so he is tall. No. We have two very tall people in Ben Harper and Kevin Gravel now. I actually haven't even seen a picture of mm-hmm. Kevin Gravel even at training camp. Like I, I. This honestly... is the thing: is Kevin Gravel could be anybody. They could have made him up. They could Maybe have been like, Star Sujimoto and they just, yeah. He's a fictional man. They they, they got Nick Lister <laughs> out of retirement and just gave him a new name. <laughs> we <can hope. laughs> new name added some stilts. It's like, yeah, Nick, you can play on stilts and still be a third pairing defenseman, right? It's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Um yeah, so there are a lot of these guys. Um Timu Kibi Halmi, and by the way, uh I should correct myself here. He actually does have slight performance bonuses here. Uh, Liljegren's are much more significant. Timu's are 132.5, and his base salary is 792. So even if you include them, he's still not making that much money. But he kind of dazzled at development camp, probably because he's a grown professional and he was playing against a lot of non-professionals or, you know, junior players, etc. And so it'll be interesting to keep an eye on him to see if he makes a real indent, or if he just, you know, disappears into the either, we really don't know at this point. I I read a lot of interesting things about Kivi Halmi, but, you know, I've been excited about a lot of players before. Dev Camp is kind of a, a fun house 
So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on him. But the point is, there are all of these guys who are kind of in the mix. Yeah. And not only will we not have a clear idea of what they are before training camp and the preseason, but even the coaching staff are going to probably be holding their opinions in abeyance until that point. You know, like, there's a lot of room for these guys to move around and to make an impression. And so those jobs are really, I think, up for grabs in the purest sense. Yeah, I I do think... Um, I Okay, so... Maybe this is my bias here, but I genuinely think Marmar is the best choice for the third-pairing left defenseman role. I would not be surprised to see him there because, one, as much as he has pissed off Babcock at times, I'm sure, by, you know, little things like putting the puck into his own net, top shelf, two or three times a game. uh, He did get Mike Babcock's trust once, especially as a penalty killer. And... There's gonna, there are going to be openings on the penalty kill for defensemen. Um, we're down Ron Hainsey and Nikita Zaitsev, who were the two guys then. Um, so I think you could say Martin Merchant has maybe a bit of an inside track there. My worry is that um, Ben Harper is going to get that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people seem to be putting him there, and that worries me. Because, I don't know, it's like where there's smoke, yeah, there's like, fire. Yeah, it's like, why? Yeah, and it's like... Yeah. Ben Harper... And I hope I never run across him in real life because I've said some very mean things about his hockey playing ability. He, he is one of the best few hundred hockey players in the world. It's just he's not quite good enough for the NHL, in my opinion. Um, he yes, is very tall he's and very like strong. Very tall. He's like 6'7 six, or 6'6. Six, six. He's gigantic. Unfortunately, it yeah, doesn't um, appear... So that's good. It doesn't appear his team does particularly well when he's on the ice. And... Again, we have to caveat this with... Yeah. We have to caveat this with... He was in Ottawa. You know, it's a weird thing there. It's like a funhouse mirror. um, Which would make him look even taller, funnily enough. But... (laughs) That's actually why... He's actually (laughs) 5'11". Distorted. Uh, Yeah. But, yeah, like, I feel like all the stuff that we're saying about CeCe, where it's like, well, maybe if he's in a better situation and on a better team and with a better partner, and everything will kind of be less bad. With Harper, we have to do all of that, like, 50% more. Yes. Just to get him to be, like, a third-pair defenseman. And I'm like, I'm really straining already with CeCe. Yeah, Harper's unequivocally, like, worse than CeCe. And and the thing is, like, I don't see what Harper adds over Marinson, because, like, Marinson is tall as well. He also kills penalties. He's actually, he's cheaper by 25 grand. So it's mm-hmm. like all the little factors point to Marinson, except, you know, his small habit of giving the puck away in front of his own net. Yeah. And is that really that big a deal if you yeah. think about and, it? Okay, so, and, okay, since a lot of people actually don't yeah. know about this source, Marinson has genuinely pretty decent play-driving numbers. By um, Micah McCurdy's uh, new Magnus model, which is a way to um, isolate the 5v5 play-driving impact of any player— over the past few years, um, Marinson has been slightly below average. Slightly below average means you are basically a four or five, mm-hmm. right? So you're 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 qualified to play on a third pair, right? Given like kind of the error bars around this sort of thing. So Marinson is a fine enough player, especially since he isn't going to play there long term. I think if Marinson is your your seventh defenseman or is like kind of a third pair guy who hops in and out of the lineup, that's kind of his spot in the NHL. That's where he's fine. Right, Harper, by all evidence-based measures, seems to be worse than that. And it just seems like it'd be a bit of an unforced error to play Harper there over Marinson. And the only thing that kind of Harper really adds is the kind of the toughness, grit, that sort of thing. 
And there's been some articles by Toronto beat writers saying like, hey, that's how Harper feels his kind of road to the lineup. That, that's where it goes through because the Leafs are not a very big or tough team. But, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, it comes as no surprise to any listener of this podcast that we probably don't think that those particular attributes of Harper have enough value to overcome his, the fact that he's worse at hockey than Martin Marinson. Yeah, you know, it's a little concerning, uh, just the amount of mental effort we have to go through to talk ourselves into him as a third pair guy. Because really, being a passable third pair guy should be within the realm of results for most of these players. Like, you should be at least like, oh, well, he's kind of a 6'7", but eh. You know what I mean? Yeah. With Harper, I looked at his results and I'm like, he's kind of not a 6'7". He's like a 9. Yeah. And so, you know, with Kevin Gravel, who, again, is made up, I think he could be a 6'7". I've seen a few of his results. They were fine. You know. Uh, Harper, just we have a bit of a track record of him being bad. That is concerning. So something to keep an eye on there is that uh, training camp battle, you know. Now, that said, it's not out of the question that he gets in there, and it turns out that it really was just the Ottawa Funhouse mirror, and Harper Schmaltz uh, is our terrific third pairing. But I wouldn't bet on it. Yeah. So on the right side, uh, I mean, Schmaltz kind of seems like he has a decent shot there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other option is Justin um, Hall. Yeah. And but but the thing is, and we and, mentioned this perhaps yeah. in the last podcast. If I'm Timothy Liljegren, I'm thinking Jordan Schmaltz. I can beat that guy. Right? Like he, yeah. He has to be looking like, at this absolutely. as like I should make I should make it clear that I am the best option for that. And if they send me down, it should have nothing to do with my play. Yeah. Like make them make a really tough decision here. I mean. Big picture a bit, they're probably thinking, look, uh, Lily is still 20 years old. He would be really best benefited by being a top pair defenseman in the NHL. Uh, sorry, in the AHL for a year. You know, that sort of thing. And that's entirely reasonable, but make them make it on that basis. Give them doubts about it. Like, really assert as best you can that you are ready. I'd, I'd love it to, for him to have a, a big showing in training camp. Frankly, that would make training camp more exciting. Mm-hmm. But, um... Yeah, whereas, you know, you have guys like Schmaltz, who I think, if Lily doesn't do it, you have to expect Schmaltz definitely has the inside job, because as you've said, his competition is Justin Hall, so that's basically no competition. Yeah, I mean, so interestingly, um, <laughs> at training camp right now, some defense pairings, they, they, we have Riley Cece and Muzzenberry. Harper and Marinson are a pair, which is weird. Marinson's playing the right side there. Um, by the way, that's another thing that yeah, should help although, Marinson. Marinson can play both sides. And this was interesting because I noticed um, a while back that Marinson was one of the few defensemen that Mike Babcock seemed willing to play offside pretty regularly. Yeah. Like, he did it a lot. Yeah, and Marinson typically uh, does anyway. play lefty. At least he has in the NHL for the mm. most part. But Babcock has shifted in sometimes to the right side. There was there was a Riley-Marinson pairing at one point that lasted like five games and did surprisingly well. <laughs> it was too beautiful for this world. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, like, th- that's kind of interesting. That's another thing that makes me kind of feel that maybe they're leaning towards Harper for that lefty role. Cause they're... But then I, I guess it just might just be that Marinson is the guy making up the numbers. They have more lefties than righties, and he's the one left guy who can shift over. Anyways, the other pairings are Sandin Schmaltz, Gravel Hall, 
and Kivihame Liljegren. So the fact that Liljegren's with Kivihame perhaps shows that maybe the Leafs don't see him as competing for a job right now. That doesn't scream a pairing mm-hmm. of people who they expect to see together, but things are in flux, and I wouldn't read that heavily into it. Yeah. I'd say, I mean, it's not impossible. Like, you could actually tell me from a time machine that our opening lineup on the first day of this, the season had any of those pairings as its third pair, and I would be like, well, that's not crazy. Like, it's not totally beyond the realm of my imagining. Um, except the one with Justin Hall, because, again, it's like, you know, if Justin Hall is your third pair right defense, you're single to me. What's he going to do? Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, that's kind of the state of play down there. Um, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how things open up there and what Mike Babcock values, but I would expect there was going to be at least one big body there that is a penalty killer, like almost without question. So it's a question of who. Yeah. So then do you think that covers the defenseman? Should we move on to the forwards? Yeah, and uh, the forwards are are interesting because, again, you know, Zach Hyman is apparently out right now. Um, We'll see how long that lasts. But um, right now it looks like the top two lines are Janssen, Matthews, Nylander, and then Kapanen playing on the left side, Tavares Marner. Um, While we're going to talk about the open jobs for a bit, I would like to just take a moment and just daydream about how beautiful those two lines are yeah that that's that's, a, that's really a pretty good. sick top six it really is and um justin Bourne yeah. had a nice tweet i thought about uh kapanen earlier today i mean let me just pull it up um specifically about kapanen mm-hmm. playing on on the left side on his off wing so uh, let me just grab that give me one second but what, what he mm-hmm. said was uh regarding kapanen playing the left wing with Tavares and marner he played some left wing with marley's knowing the positional right wing logjam he'd face with the leafs I personally, this is Bourne saying as a player, I personally hated playing off wing on breakouts, uh, but he's so unique, constantly pushing pace diagonally across the zone on breakouts that handedness doesn't affect him there much. Can get in on the forecheck like Hyman, offer them another offensive element. The line likely won't be as good defensively. He won't recover pucks quite the same as Hyman, but they'll be a nightmare to defend. Biggest thing with the off wing is getting enough games there so you get to playing and not thinking. So I think that's a, a, a useful kind of tidbit. I didn't know that he that Kapanen played a lot of uh, left wing with the Marlies, or played some left wing with the Marlies, but yeah, he does seem like a guy who kind of could benefit from from that. Um, one of the mm-hmm. kind of downsides of playing your offside is it's a bit harder to carry the puck up your strong side because the puck is more exposed to the defenseman, right? Um, right. Kapanen, as Bourne notes, does do a lot of diagonal kind of cuts um, on breakouts, so maybe that impacts him less. I'm not an expert on that, so. You know, I'll, I'll trust Bourne on that on that front. So, but it is interesting. He's certainly more skilled in the offensive zone than Hyman. Although Hyman has, you know, all those kind of badger techniques that make him so useful on any line. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I really don't think that. Um, I like. I'm not super concerned with him playing off wing there, just because I think so many of his skills are so flexible. Yeah, it should be undeniable. I mean, and the use of the preseason is if you're doing it now, he's hopefully getting those games in in the next two or three weeks um, so that he hits the ground running mm-hmm. when it comes to, to opening night. And, and I mean, so if you're going way, to, I mean, yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm interrupting you a lot. But um, if you're going <laughs> okay. to, 
you're paying Mitch Marner like $11 million because he's a hell of a passer. You're giving him another pretty good shooting threat. And um, it opens up a one-timer and a better angle for his shot when he's in the offensive zone. And if he can find space, Marner's a sublime passer. He'll find him. And Tavares is uh, nothing to shake a stick at on that front either. Yeah, so there's a lot to love about there. I mean, it is just worth noting. Like, we've probably got as good a top six as exists in the NHL, and that's why we're paying that enormous amount of money that give us such concern. And so as much as we're fretting about it, we should also enjoy it. Yes. Um, Although, I'm sorry, just to add on, uh, when Hyman comes back, Mm -hmm. we do expect Hyman to take over that role on on the left wing of that line. Yeah. Yeah, and... (laughs) I think some people are going to be mad about it, unless Cappy, like, really crashes and burns there in a way I don't expect him to. But, look, every line with Zach Hyman on it has worked in the NHL. So, at a certain point, it's like, you know, if it ain't broke. And that also gives Alexander Kerfoot something to work with on the third line. Which is uh, a nice thing to have, frankly. So, what's the third line right now? And so, so, right now... It's really in flux, but we have Kerfoot at center. We have Ilya Mikhaev at left wing and at right wing. And this caused a bit of a stir. We've seen Jeremy Bracco for a bit, which is pretty wild. Yes. Um, that would be interesting. Now, we had a lot of discussions about Bracco in the top 25. And we said, is there going to be an opening for a player with his skill set where it's like he really needs to be put in an offensive role to succeed? He's a playmaker. He's um, an offensive player. He doesn't bring a lot on the defensive side of the game. Um, I'd be surprised if this were in the opening night lineup, but look, Bracco is talented. And if he gets in there, maybe he'll get points. It's possible, but more recently we've seen Patan there instead of Bracco. Yeah, which is a lot more likely. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Although, even that is somewhat interesting because um, Patan, I believe, like typically plays left wing. The Leafs training camp classifies him as a left wing, but he's playing right wing on that side, on that line. Um, Maybe he's a placeholder. He's a left hand shot. He is, right? So, it's interesting. Um, (laughs) In the training camp scrimmage today, uh, there, so it was because there's so many people at Leafs camp. Like every team has maybe a handful of NHLers. But one of the teams today had Janssen, Matthews, Nylander as a line. And the other team today, their best line in terms of NHLers was Mikheyev, Kerfoot, Pratan. So mm-hmm. Janssen, Matthews, and Nylander basically just destroyed that line every single time they were on the ice together. It was kind of demoralizing <laughs> if you were uh, one of the one of the three on the other it's side of harsh. that. Yeah. It was like kind of some Globetrotter stuff at some point where they're just they're overpassing to an insane degree because it was... A blowout in this scrimmage very early. Kasmir Kaskasuo, who I believe was a net for the losing team, gave up seven goals in the first 20 minutes. Um, oh, man. I'm, I'm, On the upside, that probably improves his goals against average. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you cannot seriously, like, read into training camp scrimmages, right? It, it, no. It has no importance whatsoever, but, like, literally everything was going in. It was, it was like, all-star level goaltending. Like all-star game level goaltending, I should be clear. Yeah. <laughs> it was the opposite of all-star. Not the guys who make the all-star game. The guys who have that level of effort. Yeah. Exactly. I would be interested to see how this pans out. Um, I know I've been waving the Nick Shore flag a lot, and so I don't want to get carried away with sort of the wish being followed or the thought or anything. But it wouldn't totally stun me if he ended up maybe getting some time at third line right wing 
for the partial reason that he's a right-hand shot and the Leafs love having their centers and their wingers trade off. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a natural Kerfoot center. shoots left. Yes, and so if you were thinking, okay, maybe if we want to do the face-off thing, if Shore can do enough to show that he's going to be useful there, and I think he's a pretty good bottom six player, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get the job just because a lot of the other remaining guys are left shots. And then that leaves Jason Spezza as your option to center the fourth line, um, accompanied by some combination of Agostino, Patan, Trevor Moore. Um, Trevor Moore, we're like, we're sure is going to be somewhere. Yes. Yeah. He's almost certainly on the roster. But it'll be interesting to see where. Yeah. He he showed, he showed too much. Yeah. uh, To really be denied um, as a complimentary player. But at the same time, you know, he is a left shooting winger, and he'll play the offside if he has to. But I do think people may be a little carried away with his offensive potential. Just I, I like I don't think that he's gonna score significant amounts in the NHL, which is fine. He doesn't really have to to be a depth guy. It's just that limits its upside. So mm-hmm. you can kind of jumble these names into any combination, and there are some plausible answers. It's hard to see a lot of extra space for some of the guys that maybe people like to think about being promoted from the Marlies, like Pierre Engvall or Adam Brooks or Mason Marshman or something like that. Yeah. There are just too many guys ahead of them. Yeah. It's, it's a um, real, real yeah. log jam, right? So like we, there's a kind of the obvious seven, more, there's more than seven, but there's like seven people who are like on the roster come help no matter what happens. If you know, a meteor hits the earth, they'll still be on the roster. Right, uh, in, in Matthews, yeah. Tavares, Marner, Nylander, Kerfoot, Janssen, Kapanen, and then I'd put Mikay up there too. Simply because... He's, he, yeah, he's he, probably there just because he's talked about by so many knowledgeable people as being there, and he's being played at third line left wing with Kerfoot. That's suggestive. Yeah, and he know? also has uh, well, an out clause, right? And I, I don't... I imagine he would use it if he was sent to the AHL. So those guys are... Yeah, I'm guaranteed. not sure that's been confirmed, but it's pretty standard. So. Yes. Yeah. And then you have Trevor Moore, who I think is almost a guarantee. And then you have like a... So that's how many people already. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's nine already. We're not including Hyman at this point. There's still four yeah. more uh, on the Leafs' current like roster on Cat Friendly. Nick Patan, Nick Shore, Kenny Agostino, and Jason Spezza. The Leafs probably can't afford to carry spare forwards, or at least not that many of them. So... Maybe there's jobs for the four of those guys, but then you get into the players who are currently not considered roster players, right? Um, like Gautier and Korshkov and Engvall. It becomes really and Brock. It becomes really hard for those guys to break into that upper group. Yeah, and Pontus Auberg is like floating around here yes, too. Pontus Auberg. I don't think anyone knows what to make of him. Isn't Pontus Matt- Auberg is just interesting because? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, just Pontus Auberg has like scored in the nhl yeah and yet no one seems to like him very much he's and good i'm real curious as to why that is he's good for like but. two or three highlight reel goals every year and nothing else to yeah be he's clear. one of those like, guys who good. does that and nothing else yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and then yeah um, the, there's also don't we have like matt reed on a pto yeah, which I think is favored to a friend territory. Yeah. You know, Dave Haxtell is now our assistant coach. He knows Matt Reed from his time in Philadelphia. And, like, I just, I don't see the space. But it's worth noting, this logjam is not accidental. Like, yes. we went out of our way to pick up these guys, uh, some of them well into summer. And 
you know, the Leafs like competition at training camp. They like to have a lot of options. But it also means that they were quite willing to put a lot of guys in front of all of those sort of fringy Marlies forwards that everyone likes to talk about, which suggests they're not viewing them as real candidates to make the team this year. I would be really surprised if the end roster had any of the Marlies on it. Like, I'm thinking of, you know, Bracco is the head of the group, but then Engvall, Korshkov, Brooks, Marchman. It's not impossible, but I'd be really surprised. Yeah, they just have to they have to beat out one of the guys from that first four, first group of four. And then the other thing, that first group of four is actually making less money than the Marlies. That first group of four, mm-hmm. the most expensive among them is Trevor Moore making 775, and Nick Patan makes 775K as well. Shore makes 750, Agostino makes 737.5, Spezza makes 700K. But then you look at those mm-hmm. Marlies guys, Korshkov's ELC, so it's 925, Engvall 925, Bracco 842, uh, Marchment 767, so he's in the same range, Brooks 759, so he's in the same range, but they're probably further away. Right, so like Marchment maybe could. He's a left wing. Um, he does bring an element that the Leafs don't currently have. Maybe they prefer him over Kenny Agostino for that reason. But my bet as of right now is that the Leafs' fourth line comes out of the the trio of it'll be three of the f- four people of um, Patan, Shore, Agostino, and Spezza, with more most likely being yeah. uh, on the on the third line. Yeah, Moore's is probably kind of the king candidate there. Yeah. So, you know, it'll be interesting to watch. And, you know, there's always a chance that someone really blows the field away and makes a huge impression in camp. These guys are at an age where they're still developing. It's not unheard of for guys to take a developmental leap. And again, you know, they're trying to leap onto the fourth line. It's not like they're trying to, you know, suddenly show themselves as 25 goal men in the NHL. But... There is just a very clear logjam of bodies ahead of them and of guys who are established NHL depth forwards as opposed to guys who are not really blowing away the Marlies. So it'll be interesting, but I I would expect if we see any new body there, it's going to be on defense probably. And even then, it looks like it'll be (laughs) some combination of those guys. So it, it might be a bit of a cheap veteran team in depth, not a lot of young guys on the come up and maybe that's just a natural function of our best projects have all long since graduated and we don't have a ton in the pipeline right now that's ready yeah pretty much and i I mean this is going to be how it goes i think going forward we're going to try and develop whatever guys kind of we can who kind of rise above yeah it's harsh to categorize them as this but the the people who rise from like the chaff of the Marlies, right? Yeah. Uh, like Moore has done, and like Kapanen and Janssen have done before. Kapanen's a bit of a different scenario. He was always expected to be an NHLer given his draft position. Um, and like in the future, maybe that's like a Nick Robertson, right? Or if his yeah, or if his you know uh, projection improves, maybe an SDA. Uh, he he has SDA has a long way to go. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like that that's kind of going to be how it is, and then we're going to supplement that with. Guys making 700 to 750k every year, and that that's pretty much going to be yeah. the least fourth line. Like, d- don't get attached to anyone on that fourth line. Exactly, because if they really outperform, they go get a raise, like Tyler. Like Tyler Ennis did. Um, yeah, um, and you know, Godspeed to him. It's too bad that he went to Ottawa, 
But um, but I think I think that's also a good you know? position for him because he he's going to get power play time there. He's going to get some serious minutes there. So that, that's a, a another deal where he could come off it looking pretty good. Yeah, and, and uh, I really wish him the best. I will say this: he looked so good in that game seven, in a game where a lot of the Leafs did not. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Godspeed to him. Yeah, uh, and I mean he's still very yeah, cheap. but that's making, kind of the jumble. He's making eight hundred k this year, which I mean, the Leafs could have offered him that actually really yeah you wonder if they just got beat to it and then in terms of like you know he wanted to go with dj smith or what have you but yeah it could very well be that it could also be again he's going to get more of a role in ottawa than he than he would yeah that's very true you know here he was still a depth guy he was still an occasional uh scratch whereas (laughs) in ottawa he's like the fourth best forward or something like that yeah no, man, Ottawa's yeah. it's a disaster this They're year. Very bad. The, the thing is, Brady Kachuk is, and Thomas Shabbat are two phenomenal good young players. Like, they're super good. Yeah. But I just have no fear of that team. And, you know, they've got Brandstrom. Yeah. No, well, it, the thing is, is that they don't have good players. Well, like, I, they I, don't have enough good players. I have no fear of them in the future, though. Like, like I don't know. If Mon- Montreal, I'm like, kind of worried about them because, like, hey, Nick Suzuki looks good. Ryan Painting's good. Kotkaniemi might be a future selkie winner um mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm like oh that team could do something right in the future with ottawa i'm like okay cool they're gonna have some good young players and melanick's gonna screw it up somehow and that's it like yeah basically they have a wonderful capacity to just absolutely ruin themselves exactly I mean, the thing is is they need uh they need draft hits and they've drafted perfectly well quite well clear, I would right? say. the drafting has not been the problem yeah um but they need a franchise draft pick, so maybe they get Lafreniere this year or something. And then they need to hit, like, four or five more times. Like, because their capacity to attract, or, let's be honest, pay free agents is, like, nothing. And then their capacity to even maintain their own RFAs is in doubt at this point. You know, maybe they'll sell their guys on the, the beauty of Ottawa, which is a nice enough place to live. But, like, eesh. I do like how we took some time, no matter what happens, to make fun of the Senators. Yeah. Know? It's the important <laughs> things in life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just before we recorded this podcast, by the way, um, Charlie McAvoy signed a deal with Boston. It's like a three-year, $4.9 million AAV bridge deal. Qualifying offer in the last year. Or sorry, last year's salary is $7.3 mil, So his qualifying offer is going to be $7.3 mil. Um, It's a good deal for Boston. All of the defensemen seem to me to be coming in at extremely reasonable deals, and it's frustrating to me because oh, I yeah, don't very, want them to because they're not our so. players. The one upside is that it but, puts a cap on what Travis Dermott can make. Yeah, I mean, he's not even in those guys' class. No, he's not thing. even close. So, no. Um, but, yeah, hopefully there's there's some sort of salary suppressant uh, to do there. And, again, we still aren't seeing the big forwards that everyone's waiting on. Like if we're trying to see if Marner has shifted the market, it'll be interesting to see again, point Kachuk Rantanen, but there's not much evidence of it happening on the defense side, except that they're taking short deals with high qualifying offers, which is something, Mm -hmm. but that's a really reasonable deal for McAvoy and the Bruins are lucky to have him. Yep. Um, And then I guess last thing I'll mention before we go, Kristen Chilton just tweeted that Mike Babcock said he thinks Zach Hyman is going to miss 14 to 15 games pegging his return at the end of October or early November, and Travis Dermott is expected 
out to be out 12 to 14 games. So it could be similar return times. I guess uh, Babcock has expanded on his 14-game prediction. For Dermot, <laughs> he's saying it might be 12 <laughs> as well. Um, so yeah, basically end, yeah. Of, end of October, early November for both those guys. So before then, the Leafs have a bit more roster flexibility, um, specifically with Hyman coming back, mm-hmm. uh, before Hyman comes back. After that, it's going to be 21-man rosters and uh, some clever cap ma- uh, machinations by Brandon Pridham, who is certainly going to have to earn his paycheck this year. Yeah, I noticed last season they promoted him to an official assistant GM, and by God, we need him. So, yeah, looking forward to Justin Hall, fourth line right wing. It could happen. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be the funniest thing in the world, especially if, like, somehow he got out on, like, an aborted shift with, uh, with, like, Matthews and Nylander or with, like, uh, Tavares and and Marner and, like, somehow scores. (laughs) Oh, yeah, if he scores, like, that's going to be a meme until we die. Yeah. Like, that's the most beautiful thing in the world. It'd be amazing. Okay, cool. Was there anything else you wanted to add before we headed out? Uh, no, we are just moving back to our weekly schedule. Yes. Uh, I believe. Yes, and next and, week, uh, yeah. <laughs> we should have, I'm, I'm potentially cursing us by saying this before I've confirmed it with our guest, but we're hoping to have uh, Alan from, uh, from Raw Charge on, if not next week, soon, before the season starts, and we'll go through an Atlantic Division preview, talk about the Leafs and the Bolts. Um, I have a great zinger for him about the, the Bolts losing in the first round that I can't wait to 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 put in his face, and then he'll validly retort that the Leafs have done nothing since 2004. So, anyways. <laughs> yeah. He's going to send us just a screenshot of the Leafs cap friendly and then the Bolts cap friendly, and that's going to be his comeback to everything. Yeah. <laughs> so. In the rest of the podcast, it's just like muffled Good sobs Rob, from the two of us and him laughing. <laughs> So look forward to that. Yes. But yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman stuff at pentatlantpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fuleman. We both wrote articles about the Marner deal. We're going to be ramping up as we hit the regular season. And PPP's, uh, in my opinion, the best spot to go for all your Leaf stuff. Uh, we'll have daily previews, recaps, discussions, articles, all that sorts of thing. So definitely uh, check it out. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week.